for allowing us to gather tonight, and thank you for uh, giving us a place that's nice and cool inside, because it's quite warm outside, but Lord, thank you that you give us a place, uh, a music hall as a sanctuary, and Lord, thank you that you sent people and you've drawn us out to come just to hear your word taught tonight, and Lord, it blesses me to see those that have a hunger and a thirst after your word, because you say in Matthew chapter 5 that those that hunger and thirst after righteousness will indeed be filled. And so, Lord, I pray more than anything tonight that you'd fill us all up, myself included, that we would be filled with your Spirit and that we'd be prepared not only to, uh, to be with you, as we've been called to be, but to go, to be sent by you. Lord, thank you that you desire to use people to reach people. And thank you for the Arcadia Valley. As I think about just having the Mountain Music Festival this weekend, it's been neat to be amongst and to be around and to hear the different styles of music and to meet the different people and Lord I just pray as uh, as I was mentioning last week that as we uh, put our house up for sale in Farmington Lord that you would indeed sell our house and Lord that you'd get us down here we feel called to be here and we thank you for laying that on our hearts and we thank you that we're really just coming to share that which we first received from you and Lord I just pray that you'd use uh, your word tonight to impact lives to transform us into the image of your son in Jesus' name, amen. Well, just a couple of announcements. Uh, as always, we have cards back there if you have any prayer requests, and also we have extra Bibles. Uh, I know that I teach from the New King James, and I know for some it's easier to, to follow along if they have the same translation, but you are welcome to use any translation you like as long as it's a Bible that's not had any parts taken out of it. Um, also, um, let's see. There is a church picnic uh, for the Farmington Church. They're having a ch- church picnic in uh, July 14th, and uh, it's at 1 o'clock p.m., and I was thinking about it, and I was like, well, we, you know, we can go ahead and join everybody because really it's just the body of Christ gathering together to eat food, uh, to get to know one another, and to fellowship, and I think uh, there's going to be food, and I think there's a pool, and so there will be some fun stuff to go on, and there's more details as, as they come, but... I'll also get some directions because I was thinking, well, it's going to be a little far because it's in Madison County, but if you just shoot over 72, I think it's actually closer, the place where we're having the church picnic, it's closer to here than it is even from Farmington, so it'd be kind of a neat opportunity for fellowship. But as you turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 4, that's where we'll be at tonight, you'll have to excuse my, uh, my nasal, uh, I've got some allergies apparently. So in Mark chapter 4, verse 21 is where we'll start tonight. As we gathered last week, uh, Jesus was again spending his time teaching the multitude that gathered around him. This time, however, he was teaching in parables. We've discussed the fact that Jesus taught in parables in the past so that those who wanted to learn would kind of lean in and, and ask the question, what does he mean by this story? And those that were just casually kind of listening from the side and really didn't want to obtain anything would just hear a story, maybe even about farming tips, as we'll look at tonight and as we looked at last week. They'd hear about, you know, how, you know, what kind of ground receives seed and it goes into the soil. But for those that wanted to learn about the kingdom and had seen the works of Jesus and had heard the other teachings, everything mixed together would show them not only farming tips, but it would show them the truths that comprise the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is laying these things out in a, in a dual pattern. And the, the Greek word for parable is just 
parable, and it just means that uh, to cast alongside. It's an earthly story, something that the, the audience could relate to with a heavenly meaning. And so it's kind of a metaphor, if you will, but it has truths in it. But you have to be careful, and hopefully I don't do this tonight, but with the parables, oftentimes people get a little bit confused or even wordy because uh, the parables were only meant to teach one truth. You can, like any allegory, you can try to take it too far and over-spiritualize it when Jesus, the author, only had one intended meaning. And so uh, hopefully I don't do that tonight. I think it's easy to read things into Scripture that aren't there. But if we take it, as we continue to take it into the context of the rest of the book, hopefully we'll, we'll do it balanced. And so... Jesus last week taught about the seed of God and what it takes in order to be fruitful and prosperous by putting our trust in his word and really just letting it sink into the soil of our hearts. Um, And if you've ever read the parable of the sower, if you were with us last week, you'll know that there was four types of soil, but there was only one type of soil that actually produced any fruit. Uh, One was was so hard on the outside that it wouldn't receive any seed And so therefore, not only did it not produce fruit, but it also didn't even receive any of the seed. There wasn't even a plant that sprouted up. And that's the idea of not receiving the word of God at all. And the other two soils, one of which was uh, what they called stony ground, but it was just really shallow soil on top of rocks. And we, you know, we have some of that around here where you can, you can sow all the grass seed you want on top of the soil. And even if it is good soil that you tilled up or scratched up, the, the seed will take root and there will be grass that grows up, but it won't grow very far in the summertime when it gets about as hot as this or late spring. You'll get this heat that will actually cause it to die because the roots don't go deep enough to get to that cool soil that's got water in it. And so then there's the, the other type of soil that doesn't produce any fruit, but it does produce a plant. And that's the soil that has something growing in it, but it's sown among thorns. And so there's the cares of the world and all the other things that are sown in the same place seem to choke out the word of God. So the word of God is sown into that person's heart. It receives it and starts to grow a plant. But because there's so many other things in the life of that believer, what happens is that there's no fruit because it's just too um, overwhelmed by all the other plants drawing nutrients and water from the soil. But the only one that produced fruit was the one that was in good soil, didn't have any weeds in it. It was deep soil, and it was also soft. So this is what we would refer to as a healthy heart condition for the believer. Such a person recognizes God's call, number one, determines to follow it, and experiences profound transformation because of that just receiving of the Word of God as God's authority. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 through 6. God's used this passage many times in my life. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, all of it. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. That's the direct result of trusting in the Lord with your whole heart. And Romans 12, verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Oftentimes God, people want to know what, what is God's will for my life, but they haven't just simply read what He's already said in His Word. And so they not, not only do they miss out on God's will for their lives, but they, they miss out on the main will that He has for our lives. Will of God 101, I like to call it. It's just to know Jesus. And as we know Jesus, uh, 
Seek first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6.33 says, and, and his righteousness and all these things will be added. And that's the, you know, the, the things that we need. He'll provide for us as we seek first his kingdom. We'll have a foundation worth building upon. So as we finally start here, we continue from last week. Jesus hasn't moved from the spot where he was while he's teaching the parable of the sower. He's sitting in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, and he's done this before, kind of a, a crowd control issue, trying to make sure that he's not overcome by the crowd that's gathered around him because it's such a great multitude that it's just easier to be in a spot where they can't get to. Oftentimes you go to a concert, and that's why they're up on a stage with a bunch of guys sitting up front with their arms crossed that could probably take out anybody in this room. you know. But what he did was, he, since he didn't have those guys, is he just sat on a boat, and he was ready to get out of there at any moment in, in, in the case that they'd kind of throng at him. So verse 21 says, He said to them, Is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be set on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should come to life. Excuse me, light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Again, he's using that phrase, and he said it twice in the, the first passage. He says, you know, behold, listen. He started with that before the parable of the sower, and then at the end, kind of sandwiched it with the same idea. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now remember, he's not talking about, you know, he who can hear noises, you know, hear noises. He's saying, he who has ears to hear, make sure that you listen. Pay attention to what I'm saying. And so... He implores them to listen because he's trying to teach them something that's more important than just where do you keep a lamp, but it's, it's about the kingdom of God. Jesus is the light of the world, and God himself in human flesh sent to preach the truth. That's who Jesus is. And as he does this, he reveals not only the truth of God, but also the heart of God. As we've seen the servant sacrificing and just continuing on and preaching the good news and healing folks and dealing with uncleanness and leprosy, we see the heart of God revealed in His character. Romans chapter 1 says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And so we see Jesus and we see Him high and lifted up, but He's humbled as a servant. And as He has this platform of ministry, what we see is we see the heart of God to reach out to those that are in need that typically didn't get reached out to by the religious folks of the day. But at the same time, as he reveals the truth to them, oftentimes what happens is the truth divides us. It reveals dark places in our lives that though we know that they're there, we try to hide them. We suppress it. We say, Lord, I know that that's the truth that's in your word, but I'm not going to be obedient to that right now. And what God says is, I'm the light of the world. Don't hide me. He's teaching them truths. And so what we do is we've been given the light of the world. We've been given this lamp. And in that day, it wasn't like, you know, you flip on a light switch and it's on. You had, you know, kind of like the nursery rhymes. You had this little, you know, candlestick on top of this platform that would hold it. But in order, or in, in the case of this story, actually, you'd have an olive lamp that would have a wick into it. And they would take lots and lots of work. And it would be costly to produce this oil and to squeeze it. And they would put it into this uh, laver, I guess. I don't know what it's called, but it would be a lamp. And they'd put it into there, and they would burn it. Now, if you and I would take one of those, say we're going camping, and our only light source is, is a lamp like this, or one of those kerosene lanterns like we used to use, or I guess nowadays you got propane. If you only have so much propane, 
and you just light it and leave it on the whole time you're camping, you might not have it when you need it. You only turn it on because you have a use for it. Well, the light of the world has been sent into the world to shed light on dark places. And so why would we not set it up in a place where it could do the most work? God didn't send it without a purpose. He didn't just send it so he could have it on. He sent it so that it would pinpoint things in you and I's hearts that he could reveal so that we could be set free from sin, so we could be set free from bondage, so that we could have everlasting life in him. He brings us to a place of repentance. I was just reading in John chapter 15, and I think I quoted a couple weeks ago where it says that the Holy Spirit was sent in the world to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Sin because we, you know, we don't know him, but righteousness because he is righteousness and judgment because if we don't repent, we'll be judged. And so he implores to us, you know, let me shine the light of the world into your heart so that you can be freed from sin to worship me, which is what we were created for. I skipped ahead. So it's important that the light of the world is not put under the beds, that it's not put on a dusty shelf, that it's not just in the car until we go to church the next week. It's important that we have it with us, that we, we delight in it, that we find our life in it. And, and I say that because I think about when I went to college, I had a Bible my mom gave me, and I went to church, and I did all those things, but all of college, it wasn't this Bible. It was a Bible that was covered in dust. It was sitting on my desk, and every night I did my homework, it was sitting there. I had it. But because it wasn't opened and because I didn't avail myself to it, it had no effect on my life. And so God gives us this light. And it's important that it have a place of prominence, not only in our lives personally, but in our homes, in our workplaces, and in the places that God sends us. It should be in our hearts written there by God Himself. And so that when we speak, maybe when we're squeezed, when we're aggravated, that the words of wrath don't come out, but the words of life. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Paul also, and the Apostle Paul, Paul wrote to his disciple Timothy. He was a young man that was raised up by God to be the pastor of the Ephesian church in the New Testament. Paul exhorted, or encouraged strongly, Timothy to be an example to believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. He encouraged him to make the reading of the Word of God, excuse me, to make the reading of the Word of God and to the teaching of the Word of God as, and doing of the Word of God as his priority. And now you may not be called to be a pastor like Timothy was, but whether you are or not, the specific truth that Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 15 through 16, it's up there already, wow, is for us all as Christians. He says, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine or the teachings of Christ. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. We must make sure that we do this. We must give heed to the word of God in order that we ourselves would be a testimony to God's life-changing power and so others would be saved and ushered into the kingdom of God forever. You know, when someone comes to the Lord, they're born again, but they're born again forever so that they have the same life that we've been given. So verse 24 says, then he said to them, take heed what you hear with the same measure you use. It will be measured to you 
And to you who hear, more will be given. For whoever has, to him more will be given. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. So Jesus here warns, first of all, to take heed that we hear in verse 9. He talks about the fact that we need to hear, we need to receive God's word. And then here in verse 24, he warns us that we, we take heed to what we hear. Take heed to that you hear, and then take heed to what you hear. The more of the word that we receive, do, and share, the more God will give us. He expands us. He gives us more capacity. That's been my prayer in the last couple of weeks, that you know, as I study God's word and, and as I teach it, that I wouldn't just get up here and kind of you know, give you back what I've been reading, but that it would affect my heart and that God would give me more capacity not just to learn it, but then to do it and be an example that I could just receive and that God would expand my capacity for learning so that I would become a lifelong learner. As Christians, we've never made it. And if we ever get to a spot where we feel like we've grown to maturity, we're there, then we need to watch out because we're getting ready to lean on our own understanding. We're getting ready to say, Lord, uh, I've got all of you I can take, and so I'm just going to go on on my own. And that's the most dangerous spot that we can be in. So as we receive God's word, it's important that we do it and that we ask him for more. You know, how many kids do you know when you give them their favorite snack, they eat it and they go, you know, I'm good, I'm, I'm full. No, you give them their favorite snack and they're like, I want another one of those. And they will eat them till they're sick. We need to be glutted. And I mean that, glutted on the word of God so that when we eat it and we partake of it, I, I want my stomach to expand all the time. I want more room, you know. I, I used to, <laughs> I had some friends in college that, you know, we didn't do the all-you-can-eat buffet, but we wanted to show everybody how many sandwiches we could eat at the local place. And we, you know, every time we went, we could eat a little bit more, you know. And, and of course, you know, gluttony is a sin, but uh, the gluttony of the Word of God, I don't see that anywhere in Scripture of being sin. So we need to take heed that we hear it and receive it and do it. And it's, so he's always trying to teach us more about following him until we see him face to face. See there he says, whoever has which means those who have been born again and received his word, those who continue to receive God's word and do it, more truth will be given to them. But to whoever does not have spiritual life will lose even what little desire that he or she seems to have or thinks that they have. So if we listen to the Lord, he will give us even more to hear, even to think about it in your own personal lives. Uh, if you were to teach someone a skill that you have, and they heard it, and they never used it, how likely would you to be to teach them something more the next time they see you and ask you, hey, remember what you were teaching me? Can you teach me a little more? No, you'd look at them and you go, I, I just spent a whole bunch of time teaching you the first things, and you haven't done them yet. Why, why do you think you're ready to graduate onto the next grade? And, and it's no different with God. How can God trust us with more of his word, more of his life-giving truth, if we're not good stewards of it? Each day he desires to teach us more about himself, but if we haven't taken advantage of what he's already given us, he's not going to teach us more. And basically, because we're not teachable. The cool thing is, though, it's up to you. As much of you, God's word that you want, as much as of God's truth, as much of his wisdom that you want, he's ready to give it to you. You just have to ask, and you have to want it. It's the same thing I was thinking about this. You know, I used my own little parable uh, 
I don't fill my Jeep's gas tank unless I already used the gas that I put in it last week. And God's the same with us. Verse 26. And he said, The kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed on the ground, just like last week, and should sleep by night and rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how, for the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, after that the full grain in the head. But when the, when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. So this is Jesus describing the kingdom of God. Remember, he instructs the disciples when they ask him how to pray. And I don't know if we've been there yet in Mark. I don't think we have. But one of the things that he teaches them to pray is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God's kingdom comes this way. Seed is sown on the ground. He who sows the seed and in the meantime will continue life as usual after the seed is sown. See, when a farmer goes out to, to plant a crop, he walks out there or he drives out there with his tractor. He spreads that seed. And do you think he just stands there and stares at it until it grows? No, he spends his time going and doing the other chores, fixing fence, you know, helping out his wife with his family. He goes and he does other things while he expects that the seed that he has sown will grow. Number three, the seed silently takes root sprouts and it grows it grows he who sows the seed knows not how it does these things but he who sows the seed sows it expecting it to grow number five the growth process is silent and slow we have to deal with that four-letter bomb wait but he sows the seed expecting it grow so at the end is the result is observable. Even though it takes off slow and it starts with these tiny seeds, it lands on the ground and as it grows up, it starts with something very small, but then it gets tall and it produces fruit. Oftentimes, men think that the kingdom of God should be other than like a plant. They think that it should spring up, flash, make lots of noise, but the truth of the matter is that more times than not, God's kingdom grows as the daily routines of life continue. Matthew chapter 28, it's a well-known chapter, but in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, we have a passage that we call the Great Commission, right? It's when Jesus commissioned his disciples to go ye therefore. It says, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So he says there, go therefore. The word go there in verse 19 literally means as we go or as you go. So we're supposed to go out and make disciples, baptizing them. But the thing is, is that a lot of us have jobs, right? A lot of us aren't in full-time ministry. I'm not but we're called to go and make disciples as we go. And so as we live our family lives and as we go to work and as we meet people on the street, we're supposed to share the word of God. And as we do that, as we go, what God does is he raises a crop. He raises a harvest of righteousness. When we sow the word of God into people's lives, a lot of the time I think, well, I can't speak for you, but I get really frustrated because I feel like I, 
I share with people things that have affected me personally, but I don't share them my own experiences. I just say, here's what the Word of God says. And if you just listen to it, heed it or do it, and, and just wait for God to bring something up, He will. And I think oftentimes I get really frustrated because I expect it to go, bam, it's there. God's Word, and it, and it just produces a crop. But the reality of the matter is that it takes time, and it takes root in people's lives in ways that we never understand or even get to see until maybe a year or two later. I'll give you a, uh, an example. A man, uh, you know, we're in graduation season, right? School's over. It's exciting. Uh, a lot of teachers are excited because it's over. A lot of them are kind of bummed because they had students that they knew could do better, but they didn't try. And uh, I had a guy that my dad used to work on his car. And he wrote me a, uh, a card in 2001 when I graduated. And it, he wrote that card probably not thinking I'd hear it or just praying, God, give this guy ears to hear. But he gave me this card, and in it was my favorite verse that God used later in my life from Proverbs chapter 3 that I read earlier. But he also wrote in there some very personal things about his own life and things that he wished that he would have taken heed to earlier in life. It was kind of a warning and at the same time an encouragement. Hey, lay all your weight, all your trust in God's Word. Learn everything that you can from Him and, and He'll direct your paths and may not always be easy, but He will keep you steadfast. He said, the thing that I wish I would have done more is not only read God's Word, but take heed to it. Actually put my trust in it. Anyway, there was a lot more things in there, and I could have brought it up here to read it, but it was kind of hard to read. But I know that I received that card in 2001, and I read it, and there was money in it. <laughs> so he wasn't just giving me God's Word, but he was also blessing me practically. But what happens is I read that card, and I go, oh, cool, a graduation card. Threw it in the back of my desk. Went off to college, did a bunch of different stuff. Um, anyway, I started walking with the Lord about six or seven years ago, and uh, it was funny because I'd never found that card until maybe five years ago when I was looking through one of my totes. It has all the memorabilia. It's got trophies, newspaper articles, blew the dust off of all of it. And I was like, you know, none of the stuff really appealed to me. I was like, why am I toting this stuff around? But the one thing I found that I treasured and actually made me weep a little bit is I opened up that card and I read it. And I was like, Lord, why did I not listen to what this card says because it's basically what God did in my life anyway. He did it years later, and, and I praise Him for that. But had I heeded what I had just read in that card, I would have heard a, an older man crying out to me going, hey, don't do what I did. But the cool thing is, is that years later, I got to call him the other day and say, hey, I got this card. Thank you. Thank you for trying to speak into my life, even though it didn't take root right away. And I wonder how many cards that he wrote. I wonder how many cards get written where people don't really respond right away. But I wanted to be one of those 10 lepers, the one that went back and said, thank you. Thank you for, for being obedient to the Lord and sharing God's word. And so that's what we're talking about here. Sowing the word of God even when it seemed like nothing's going to come up. And letting God bring the results. He brings the increase. Paul actually wrote one of the letters to the churches that he went and ministered to, and what happened was Paul got the church started, and then this guy that's a really good orator came in, and it was one of Paul's disciples came in, and, and he became this, you know, he, he brought them to completion. He, you know, Paul taught them the foundational truths of Scripture, and then Apollos came along, 
and, and helped them with their sanctification. They all got saved and they, they grew in grace. And so what Paul said later when he wrote, and I can't remember what letter it was, he said, I watered, or no, he said, I sowed, Apollo watered, but God gave the increase. And so as God brought that plant to maturity, what the fact of the matter is, is whether you and I sow seed or whether we water it or whether a part of discipling them, the truth of the matter is, is it's all glory to God anyway. It's his harvest that he's raising up. He just desires to use us because a changed life is really uh, the best way to, uh, to teach people about the word of God. Verse 30, then he said, to what shall we liken the kingdom of God or what with what parable shall we picture it? It's like a mustard seed, which when it's sown on the ground is smaller than all the seeds on the earth. But when it's sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all the herbs, shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. Now, a mustard seed is much smaller than a kernel of corn or a grain of wheat. It's actually smaller than all the seeds that you would plant to put in your garden if you were going to grow herbs, if you were going to grow uh, basil or something like that. It's very, very small. But what we know about mustard seeds is that when they grow, in comparison to the seed size, the plant is actually pretty spectacularly growth. It's, it's, you know, it can grow up to like 10 or 12 feet. Um, and you'll see fields of it. I had, to, I, I had to Google some of the pictures. I've never seen a mustard plant. I, I kind of wonder what the field would smell like. Um, but anyway, that's how my mind works. But the result of that tiny, tiny seed is uh, comparably larger than the seed itself. The kingdom of God is like this, starting with what many would consider an insignificant and small man in comparison to the kings and the leaders of this world. You think about Jesus Christ, everybody always has this image of their mind and what he looks like. We always see the, you know, he's kind of got red hair and he's, you know, real handsome looking and he's knocking on the door. You guys have seen that painting. And then there's all, all, all these different depictions of him. But what Isaiah says is that there was no form or comeliness that we should desire him. He looked like any other man. He didn't look, he wasn't, you know, the guy that, that's in the headlines in the newspaper. He's not the guy that's on the front page of the magazine. He was an average Joe, but he wasn't at all. So Jesus, being that mustard seed, who doesn't look like he really has much stature in comparison to the rest of the rulers of the world, was pushed into the ground by being raised up. We think of raising Jesus up. The way that he was raised up that brought the Father glory is he was put on a cross. And then as he died, he was put into a grave. But as he was pushed into that grave, what happened is out of that came this plant that grew called the church. He was resurrected, brought new life into the church. And so as his life brought us new life, it starts this plant that grows, not just like a mustard plant, because a mustard plant really gets tall, but it says here in verse 32 that it, it shoots out large branches. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I've never seen a mustard plant, but I know that they don't have large branches. That sounds to me like a tree, not a mustard plant. So the reality of the fact is that the kingdom of God starts with this tiny seed that men would look at and see, you know, that's a really small seed in the comparison to the rest of the world. But when it grows, it brings forth this plant that's not only a tall plant, taller than all the other herbs, but it grows way bigger than any other mustard plant. It's, it's got abnormal growth. It's like mutant. 
the way that it grows. And so the kingdom of God is like this. I, I guess I shouldn't call the kingdom of God a mutant kingdom, but the fact of the matter is, is that it, it grows to be very large. The birds in this parable illustrate how large the mustard plant must have become. But you see, as the church grows, it becomes large. It's not large like the world thinks. We're not going to dominate the world and show them what's up. We're not going to arm wrestle them. It's going to be large enough that birds can take shelter under the shade of it. Well, what happens is, if you remember in the parable last week, that birds symbolized evil. They symbolized Satan coming in on the hard ground where the seed was sown and it laid there. And because it wasn't received in the soil, the bird came in, swooped down and picked up all that seed. And so therefore, nothing can grow in that heart. Well, in this too, the church of God grows. And as as a result of that, it becomes big enough that, that the enemy and even people that aren't believers come in and they're really not there to receive the word of God. They're not there to bless anybody. They're coming in to cause dissension. To, to cause chasms in the body of Christ, to, to distract from the main purpose, to distract from the cause of Jesus. And so they come in and they take shelter, and in the meantime, they try to destroy from within. Satan says, okay, I can't get you from the outside. You're going to join the church? So will I. I'll be right there with you. So we have to be discerning, and that's another reason we need to know God's Word. We need to know what the fruit of a Christian looks like. So the warning here really is to not get puffed up when the church does in fact grow, always be sober-minded and aware that even in the church, the enemy is on the offense. This doesn't mean we should put up walls and trust no one. It means that even when we are with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to trust Jesus and ask Him to protect us and to protect His church from those that are really coming to stir up a bunch of distraction. There are many workers of evil who come in under the name of Jesus even. If you think about it, there's many churches that use the name of Jesus. We have the the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Well, if you read their doctrine, you read any of their books uh, that they say are infallible, what you find out is not only do they not agree, but the one thing that we have that's not in common with them, well, many things, one of the major things, though, is that they don't look at Jesus Christ the same way, but they still use His name, and so many are taken away by that, and they're like, oh, it's the same thing. I remember when I uh, first started reading the Bible, I, I had actually, a, one of my best friends was uh, of the Mormon church, and because of that, uh, I went over to their house. They were really squeaky clean. They were really morally upright, but of course, I was best friends with one of their sons, so I knew that even though they were morally upright and all those things, he wasn't, and I wasn't, because I was with him. You know, we did all kinds of stuff in their home, but the the, the fact of the matter is, is that uh, the enemy comes in and it, it, he desires to distract people and he desires to, to steal away the word of God and to even call the question whether or not the word of God can be trusted. And so we have to be on our guard. But this is nothing new. Uh, the church has been under attack since its very beginning. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. So verse 33. With many such parables, he spoke to the, the word to them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. So we remember from last week that as he got done teaching the parable of the sower, many of his disciples, because they heard the story, but they seemed like there was like, Jesus, there's got to be more to this. They just asked him personally. So Jesus continues to sow the truth of God, and it continues to land on the soil of men's hearts. 
to those who were able to hear it, they would grow. To those who casually listen, they just hear some story. And those who were his disciples would ask him to explain the parables. And when the crowds had left, he would explain them to them. Let me ask you, do the parables cause you to, to want to dig deeper in God's word and find out what he's really meaning by it? Or do they cause you to want to give up? They were meant to bring up questions in our minds and to really challenge our understanding of the kingdom of God. It seems as though they even to his closest disciples did not get the parables completely right away. But what I've noticed is that the only difference between those who were his disciples and those who were of the multitude who walked away not hearing anything is that the disciples stayed close to Jesus and they continued to ask that they continue to seek him out. May we be as his early disciples and never quit asking, never quit reading, never quit pursuing the righteousness of the Lord. And may we receive his word and use all that he gives us. And when we run out, may we go to the well and draw some more. That's the cool thing about the Lord is he's always wanting to give us more because he always has more. He's infinite. He can fill us again and again. So let's finish with verse, uh, the, the rest of the chapter. On the same day, verse 35, when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was. And other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose. And as the waves beat into the boat, so that it was already filling, excuse me, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose, he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to, he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly, and said to one another, Who can this be? that even the wind and the sea obey him. So as I've said before, Jesus by the pen of Mark is primarily shown as a servant, and they call on him here. They reach out to him. But as he is exhausted by a full day of teaching and a full day of healing and ministering to a multitude of people, he says to his disciples, let's go to another place. And they're, you know, they got to be like, what? We just spent all day ministering. You're, you're still ready to go. And he says, get in the boat. Let's go. So being on the boat on the Sea of Galilee where he was teaching from, they all jumped in and joined him. And the disciples joined him on the boat and start for the other side of the sea. Now notice in verse 36 that as these men followed Jesus across the sea, there were many little boats. This is the only recording that we have of this. Mark notices that there were little boats that were following behind him. And when you're following the Lord, remember this always, that there are going to be little boats behind you, whether it's your children or your family, whether it's you know, your spouse, they're going to be following. So if God calls you to go somewhere, no doubt you better stink and go because they need to follow you. They need to go. But if he didn't call you, take heed, be careful, because you're going to take other small boats that looks like they're going to go into a storm. They could get swamped easily. So be careful. But as they were crossing the sea, Jesus is what I would call plum tuckered. He's exhausted. He's asleep. He's in the stern of the boat. Looks like he has a pillow there. He planned on sleeping. He didn't just pass out. But he laid down to take rest. And this storm comes up. 
and it starts to shake the boat till it's filling. And it seems like after that, they still had to wake him up. You ever been so tired that you couldn't, like you just couldn't even keep your eyes open? Seems like Jesus was so spent that he needed sleep. And you know that means something because many other times when he ministered all day long, you found him before the sun was even rising, praying because he knew that was important. So Jesus showing his humanity and his, his you know, uh, vulnerability, even before his disciples, he needed sleep. And sometimes we just need that. So he's exhausted. He's asleep in the stern of the boat while a storm arose. And as this happens all the time because the elevation of the Dead Sea is so much lower than the mountains that surround the area. So the tropical area that the Dead Sea is in, when those warm air fronts or cold air fronts meet each other, however it happens, these big swell storms come up and you get these storms that take the fishermen's boat and they rock them pretty good. So as they're doing this, the storm rose up and guess what the disciples do? You have never done this. God's called you to something and he says, I'm going to, you know, let's, let us go to the other side. That's what he told them, right? Let us go, try to go to the other side. No, he said, let's go to the other side. And as they're going, the storm comes up and they freak out. They panic. Now think about the context because these men are fishermen. This isn't their first storm on the ocean, surely, or on the sea. It's not an ocean. It's like what we would consider a great lake. But as they're going across, they freak out, they panic, and they say, Jesus, what in the world? Do you not care that we're perishing? We're going to die. And Jesus wakes up. He doesn't rebuke them. Actually, I think, I wonder if he didn't rebuke them because he knew they wouldn't receive it. He instead chooses the one that's more malleable, creation, the storm, the earth, and he speaks to it. And he says, what does he say? He says, why are you, he says, uh, no, sorry. He says, peace be still. He rebuked the wind instead of his own disciples because he knew the wind was more likely to listen. (laughs) I thought that was funny. He says, peace, be still. He could have said that to his disciples. But what we get here is we get a picture of, in the same story, we have Jesus sleeping in the stern of the boat. He's sleeping there in all of his humanity. In a moment, he's woken up. Unlike you and I, I wake up and I'm like, well, what are you waking me up for? I'm, I'm panicking. I'm like, what in the world? He wakes up and he causes the storm to be completely calm. It stops. And so in the middle of the storm, he shows them that he's not only completely human, but that he's completely Lord over all creation. So I thought that was amazing to see that all in the same sentence. But he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? The question comes off up oftentimes and there's sects of uh, Christianity that look at faith and they say, okay, if you're not healed or if something doesn't happen for you in your life, it's because you don't have enough faith. But the reality is, is it's not so much the faith that we have to be concerned of. All of us have faith in something. Each one of us is putting our faith in a, a chair right now. You're not panicking. Will it hold me up? You're just sitting there relaxed. The same thing is true for Jesus. We can either put our faith or trust in him. So the faith it's more important what we have our faith or our trust in, not so much about our faith. So it's important that we have trust and faith, not just in circumstances, but in what God has already said. And if we remember, I kind of gave, you, gave it away. What did he say to them before they crossed the sea? He said, let us cross over to the other side. So if Jesus said, hey, we can cross over to the other side, we're going to make it, no matter what happens in the middle of it. 
So they were doing great before this and learning the truths and the theories. They were great sitting in class, listening to him teach the parables, and even getting a little one-on-one tutorial time with him, saying, hey, what do these parables mean? But it seems like after this teaching always comes some sort of testing. Think about that with school, with finals. All the kids are probably burned out from being tested. But they were being tested because they were taught something. The test proves whether you know it or not. And so he's given them a little test. Not to make them spin out, because he goes with them. I'll be with you in the test. But he gives them a simple test. He gives them an opportunity to trust in what he has said. They panic, but in the midst of the storm, Jesus gave them a reason to stop fearing circumstances and to learn, see it says there, from that point on, they feared the Lord. It's not like they were frightened by him, but they were in awe. They were in reverence. They were like, this guy, we can trust him. Now, later, they're going to forget that again, and they'll need to be reminded, but it seems that they trusted in him. They feared him. Rather than fearing the wind and the wave, they started to fear the creator of that wind and wave. To become steadfast, uh, excuse me. My prayer, I guess, is that we would become steadfast men who trust him no matter what. Steadfast men and women who, when everything seems like we shouldn't trust his word, that we can go, I know that this is what's going on, but this is what God's word said, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to trust in that promise. May we never stop growing in our, our desire to learn from the Lord, but may we continue to grow in our day-by-day practical trust in Him in trials. Father, thank You so much um, that You teach us and that You desire to teach us even when we hear and even when, and when we're hard of hearing. You continued to teach the parables to the multitude, knowing that even though the multitude probably wouldn't hear, there were many in the multitude that wanted to receive, that were hungering and thirsting. So, Father, I pray that as we receive your word and as you continue to teach us, not just tonight, but as we go to our homes and as we rise up in the morning and as we lay our heads down at night, as, as we walk by the way, as Deuteronomy says, that we would receive from you and that as you give us opportunities to place our trust in you practically that, Lord, that we would be found approved, that we would be workmen that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth and then also rightly trusting in the things that you've spoken to our hearts. Lord, thank you for the faith that it takes even to come out to a Bible study in a, uh, in a music hall. And Lord, thank you that for the faith that it takes to, to just open your word and to be willing to accept uh, whatever you're going to teach us. I pray that we would become those that would be really good at being obedient at what you're showing us. Uh, But Lord, thank you for feeding us. Pray that you would bless this time as we close in worship. In Jesus' name.